Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now all of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth, for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. This is the word of the Lord. For three months, our Bible markers have been brilliant red. The altar cloth has been brilliant red. The stoles we've been wearing, red. Celebrating the Holy Spirit among us, seeking to know the comfort and the power and the challenge of having the Spirit dwell in us, among us. Today we shift to green, and we will wear the green for three months. Three months from today, the whole cycle begins again. We will wear purple in anticipation of the coming of the King, our Lord Jesus. Green the next three months, the color of growth, of new life, the kingdom tide. For three months, our scriptures, our hymns, our anthems, our prayers will be asking, do you know the power of being a part of the kingdom of God? Do you know the joy of being a part of the kingdom of God? Are you living as if you are in fact a willing subject of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? All of our texts will be asking those kinds of questions for this three-month period. Today we begin a series within this three-month cycle from the letter to the Hebrews. In order to understand this 11th chapter, you need to have read chapter 10. The author didn't write in chapter and verse. Those were added in centuries later. At the very end of what we call chapter 10, he has said, We have faith and therefore have been saved. Martin Luther said 500 years ago, Sola fide, sola gratia. It is grace alone that saves us, and we receive that gift of God by faith. He knocks, we open, he comes in. Okay? If we have faith, then we have been saved. Okay, what does it mean then to live as a willing subject of the King of Kings? Number one for today. By faith... We believe the worlds were created by the word of God. Follow me carefully here. This author says to say that the worlds were created by the word of God is a faith statement, not a statement of science. 
our neighbors to the north, Kansas, our neighbors to the south, Texas, ended up with some fundamental Christians on their boards that choose textbooks for the public schools, and they decided to put the faith statement into high school science textbooks. I encourage you to know that the United Methodist Church believes in academic freedom. And we do believe that we are a diverse nation where the majority should always respect the minority and see that they have equal rights under the law. I have three grandchildren in the Jinks School District. In Jinks, Oklahoma, USA, there are 28 language groups represented in the public schools of Jinx. Right here, 28. A year ago, this month, one Sunday afternoon, I had gone to the new BOK Arena to help our mayor, Kathy Taylor, have a prayer service opening this new arena. She and her committee had involved as many faith communities as they could find who wanted to participate. 27 prayers to be offered. My two grandsons went along with me. I got to the green room first of all. First clergy to arrive. The other all arrived in time, but I was the first, and so as others arrived, I could speak to each one in turn. When the Buddhist arrived, I said to him, we're glad you're participating. How many Buddhists are there in Tulsa? And he said 30 years ago we could find four families. Today we have 1,200. When the Hindu arrived, I spoke to him. Apart from the Buddhist or any of the others, I greeted him and asked, How many Hindus are there in Tulsa? He said 20 years ago we had three families. Today we can identify a thousand families. Now how would you like a day to come when the Buddhist story about creation is taught in your child's high school science class? The Buddhist or the Hindus or the Mormon or the Jew or the Christian. We do believe in the separation of church and state and that scientists are to ask scientific questions and faith communities are to ask faithful questions. They don't have to be different, they are just not asked with the same kind of language. We United Methodists believe in education. We have more than 130 colleges and universities in this 50 states of ours, more than 130 that we own, and every one of them practices academic freedom. On one part of the campus we have the schools of science, and on the other part of the campus we have the school of religion. We encourage the scientific community to learn as much as they can about quasars and black holes and an ever-expanding universe. And every time they give us some new insight into how, we say, so that's the way God did that. It's a faith statement, not a science statement. And whenever faith communities have tried to dictate science, Within a few years, they've had to come back and apologize 
that they missed it. They're sorry they missed it, that they sometimes sentence people to death or prison because they confused a science statement with a faith statement. So it's a good time for you and me to remember. Okay, this is a big country we live in. It's a wonderful country. It's also a very diverse country. And our public schools offer education to any and all, and any and all should be respected. Science questions in science class, faith questions, theological questions in faith communities and in our homes. All right, number two. This author says, God called Abraham and Sarah to set out, and they set out to a place they had never been. You remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, of course. They came from what is modern-day Iraq in the Mesopotamian region, Mesopotamia meaning between the two waters, the two rivers, Tigris-Euphrates. They lived in a little, almost nowhere place called Ur in the Chaldean mountains. Old, childless. God came by one day and asked if they would like to have a son. Sarah laughed. Abraham got all in a tiff about that. Uh, where were you 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when we needed you? Would you like to have a son? We would like to have a son. Roll up your bed, pack your tent, come with me. And that's what they did the very next morning. Sarah was not morning sick. She was not pregnant. It took several more years before that son finally came. But in all those years, they were already packing the tent and repacking the tent and moving on. Setting out to a place they had never been before. All of us, every day of our lives, go to places we haven't been before. Having experiences we haven't had before. January 15th, a U.S. Airlines... U.S. Airways jet took off from LaGuardia in New York. Within moments, a flock of geese ingested into the two engines of that plane. Captain Sullenberger knew that he was in real trouble and started looking for a place to land. He discovered that both engines were really dead. He could not get back to LaGuardia. He couldn't even get to Teterboro in New Jersey. The biggest open space he saw was the Hudson River. And he brought that jet down safely enough into the middle of the Hudson River that not a life was lost. Two weeks ago yesterday, a helicopter took off over that same Hudson River. A small fixed-wing aircraft took off from Teterboro Airport came up under the helicopter. We now have pictures of that that people took. And the small plane hit the helicopter both went down into the Hudson and all nine people died. Five in the smaller airplane, six in the helicopter. Hmm? Nobody survived. Last weekend in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article written by a Roman Catholic priest, Father Jonathan Morris. He is a Catholic priest at St. Patrick's in New York City. And it ended up that he was called to be with the fiancé and the mother of the helicopter pilot and a short time later to be with other members of the Italian group, five of whose members had died in that helicopter. He was with both in the week that followed, and he said, I saw another miracle on the Hudson River. 
This young pilot of the helicopter, 25 years old, Captain Clark, had been baptized Christian in the Roman Catholic Church, but had never gone through confirmation. He was belligerent, fussed, complained. His parents didn't make him go, so he didn't go. And every year one passes that age of about 12 or 13, it gets more and more difficult to make that faith commitment. And Captain Clark had not until a few months ago. He sought out the priest and asked what would be necessary for him to be confirmed. He was told about lessons he would need to attend, things he would need to read, questions he would be asked to answer. He said he was ready to do that, and he did that and was confirmed. He had a good Catholic mother who had prayed every night all those years that he would confirm the faith into which he had been baptized, and he did. Father Morris says, every time I saw the fiancé in the days that followed, she had a picture. She had it right there in her hand. The last picture taken of her and him. The party where they announced their engagement and the wedding date, a wedding that had not yet taken place. Never, he said, did she release her grip on that picture to point an accusing finger at anybody else. Not once. Instead, she and the mother of the pilot talked about how wonderful everybody had been. How caring the mayor of this huge city seemed to be with their loss. How emergency personnel had rushed as quickly into the Hudson River as they had for that big jet. This time, not able to save a single life, but wreckage found and everybody recovered. He said, I was sort of dreading calling on the family of Italians. They had just flown to our country. One couple celebrating a 25th wedding anniversary, all the others there to celebrate with them. They'd been off the plane just a few hours when they decided the greatest way to see this big city was to take a helicopter tour. Five of them had gotten in the helicopter and the others saw it struck, saw it sink in the middle of the Hudson River. And he said they were grieving, but they were not hysterical. And in the days that followed, they talked about how kind the mayor was, how these emergency personnel had rushed into that river within seconds, it seemed, after the crash, how the wreckage was located, all the bodies recovered, how traffic in New York City stopped on Madison Avenue for five black funeral coaches to have a service here before they were placed on a plane and flown home to Italy. Father Morris said, you know what was different about these folks? All of them were people of deep faith who believed that God Almighty wants only good to come to us. And if terrible things are happening, God is grieving with us and sending others to help us get through the darkest days of our lives. We set out going to countries we've never been before. Third, they stayed. That's what the author says. They stayed living in tents. And Isaac and Jacob followed them. Our last trip to Israel, we'd had a really hot day down in the Jordan River Valley, Jericho, about 110 degrees. 
finally, late in the afternoon, we got on this wonderful air-conditioned bus and started that climbing drive back up the hills into Jerusalem. Suddenly, our woman guide said to the bus driver, pull over here, pull over. He pulled over beside this beautiful new highway, and she suddenly announced over the little mic system, how many of you would like to meet Abraham and Sarah? And we all looked out the window, and there was a black tent in this 110-degree weather with a few people huddled underneath it, goats grazing around it. And she said, come on, Abraham and Sarah will make you a hot cup of tea. And she got off the bus. About a third of our group got off. Two-thirds opted to do without tea, stay with the air conditioning. But the third who went discovered what she was trying to say. These are my people. They've lived in tents all these hundreds and hundreds of years. They move where they can find water. They move where they can find grass. They know this is not a city that lasts forever. They are aliens. They are moving from place to place. They stayed living in tents, the author says. Our Rotary Club, the Rotary Club of Tulsa, three times has had Jerry Lewis's son come speak to us. Yes, that Jerry Lewis, the comedian Jerry Lewis. But he doesn't come and talk about muscular dystrophy, which is about to happen again on Labor Day weekend, of course. All that conversation and all the fundraising. No, the son is identified and working for a group called the Wheelchair Foundation. He didn't begin this foundation, but now he's thrown his heart and soul into it. No, it was begun by a fellow named Baring out in California. He owned one of the big professional uh, teams, uh, made a lot of money. But he began in poverty. Uh, he was a little boy in the Great Depression in the 1930s. He's 81 years old now. But Kenneth Baring said that his father was fortunate to have a job, made 50 cents a day, like my dad when my dad and mother got married, and that his mother had a job that paid almost 50 cents a day, and that he, growing up in that Great Depression, resolved to spend his life being sure he would never be poor again. And he said, I did that till I was 70. Working, 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 grubbing for every dollar, trying to be sure I would never be poor again. And then one day he said he was in Vietnam. And he was invited into a home. And there in the corner of the room, on just a pile of rags for a bed, was a little girl. Maybe two, two and a half years old. Crippled from birth unable to move except crawl a little bit around this little makeshift bed in the corner of a very poor home. And someone said to me, her life would change dramatically if she had a wheelchair. They have no money. If she had a wheelchair. Kenneth Baring came home and decided they had to design a wheelchair that could be used in third world countries where there are no sidewalks, where there are no paved streets, where there are mud holes and bog holes and blowing dirt and so on. A wheelchair that would really stand up where all the bearings were properly sealed so that dust couldn't get in and so on. Durable tires, easy to maintain, useful for long periods of time. 
he set out to try to get a wheelchair for every third world person who needed one. Once in Zimbabwe, he said, he met a man who had crawled 12 miles down a dusty road to get a wheelchair. 12 miles. Because the only mobility he'd had all of his life was to crawl wherever he wanted to go. He said the next time he was in Zimbabwe, this fellow turned the wheels of his wheelchair 12 miles to tell him again how much he appreciated his chair and what great care he was taking of his chair. Well, they began in the year 2000. haven't had quite nine years yet. They've now put 766,000 people in wheelchairs. If you divide that out, it comes out to 233 wheelchairs every day for nine years. And Mr. Bering says, these last nine years of my life have been better than the first 72. Because I discovered that the purpose for our being here is to make life better for somebody who has less. Number four. They all died in faith without having received the promise. Eighteen times in this one chapter, the author uses the expression, by faith, by faith, by faith. And here again, they died in faith without having received the promise. Dr. Donald Hayes, Haynes had a column just recently in the United Methodist Reporter uh, he's talking about his little Methodist town, uh, church in a small town in the Midwest. He said, we are a small First Methodist church in a small town, so our congregation's aging. We don't have many children, not many teenagers, but we want to. And so he said, we had a festival recently on the weekend. We had lots of big inflatable games for the kids to play, and we were giving away free hot dogs and chips and soft drinks. One of the women in our church, he said, suddenly came over to me, showed me a little card and said, can you believe this? A very conservative Christian group down the street from our church was working our crowd, asking them, are you saved? And here were the four big questions. All begins with your saying, I am a sinner. And if you give the right answers and they pronounce, you are saved. This woman was irate. She was about ready to go clean the clock of as many of these as she could catch. And Dr. Haynes said, just as a, wait a second, wait a second. Even if we don't agree with the method, even if we don't agree with the theology, we have to admire their tenacity. But we have a better way, he said. We don't begin with Paul's letter to the Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We begin with Genesis and God created human beings in his own image, breathed into them his own breath, and said, I've done a really good thing. I've done a really good thing. And we believe when God looks at any one of us, his first thought is not, well, there's another sinner. Instead, there's one of my daughters one of my sons who's going to need help getting home. Who's going to need help getting home. And then he mentioned the story of the prodigal son 
and reminded the congregation that Dr. Tielicke, a great German preacher of the last century, was right when he said this story should never have been called the product, the story of the prodigal son. It should have been called the story of the waiting father. The waiting father, the great love and compassion, even for a son who said, in effect, I wish you were dead and I had my inheritance today. And he had gone and squandered everything he had. And then Dr. Haynes reminded in this column about Rembrandt's great painting of the prodigal son. Gail and I have seen that, Jason too. It hangs in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia. Yeah, it's a magnificent work. Rembrandt was born in 1606 in Leiden. He was 62 years old. He and his wife had had four children. Three of them died before they were three years old. And the fourth died just as Rembrandt entered 60. First wife died, second wife died. Nine months before he died, he painted this painting, The Prodigal Son. The Father is facing you as you see this magnificent campus. The Father is facing you. But you need to remember something. When Dr. Brandon Scott was here giving our Barton Clinton Gordy series, he said that when Jesus told a story about the prodigal son, and he said the father saw the son coming home and ran down the road to meet him, threw himself on his neck and kissed him, every hearer knew that's not what Asian fathers do. That's what Asian mothers do. Mothers run down the road. Mothers throw themselves on a wayward child's neck and kiss them. Jesus knew what he was doing. Look at Rembrandt's painting. The prodigal has his back to you. He's on his knees in front of his father. Slaves went barefoot. Sons and daughters wore shoes. He's missing one shoe. The other's hanging on by a thread. He's almost not a part of the family. But the last vestiges of his being a son, still there. But look at the hands. The father has a hand on each of the shoulders. The left hand, old, gnarled, rough, masculine. The right hand, smooth, smaller, feminine. God our Father. God, our mother, says, I see one of my daughters, one of my sons, who's going to need help getting home. Amen.